All right, here we are, finally back in the saddle. You have found Renegade Files, your one-stop shop for paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and covert culture. I am your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 36, Native American Aliens and Wild West UFOs. The ancient alien hypothesis has been given more than its share of attention over the past few years. The History Channel, YouTube creators, and fringe authors all seem to have something to say about aliens and UFOs in ancient history. And the leeway given to interpretations of old manuscripts, stories, and legends is wide indeed. But long before the likes of Zachariah Sitchin and Eric von Daniken put pen to paper, the indigenous tribes of North America had a rich oral tradition of not just moving lights in the night skies, but tales of brothers from deep space that make the hijinks of the Anunnaki sound like bedtime stories. The range-riding cowboys of the American frontier also encountered flying objects, crashed crafts, and told many tales of unexplained objects flying through the big skies. This is a special episode for me because it combines three subjects that I have a strong interest in and a deep respect for. The extraterrestrial UFO hypothesis, Native American wisdom, and that unique moment in time that was the American Wild West. So saddle up your best horse, grab your sugan and your favorite hat, and ride with me into the great North American West to sit by prairie campfires and listen to the old-timer tales of mysterious celestial beings who traveled across the stars to bring knowledge, new skills, and maps of the cosmos to the earliest first peoples of the land. And for the trail, we'll need to buy a newspaper, two bottles of whiskey, four pounds of beef jerky, a side of bacon, two pounds of dried beans, two blankets, and a bushel of horse grain. So, bring 15 cents. This time on Renegade Files, we'll learn all about Native American aliens and Wild West UFOs. For this episode, we'll divide the material into two main parts. In part one, we'll go over the Native American traditions and accounts of extraterrestrials as we would define them now. We'll also hear some first-hand explanations from a Sioux Indian chief. And finally, Native American spirituality was repressed by the church, and this may shape or obscure traditional information on the subject. In part two, we'll saddle up and ride with the cowboys across the frontier to hear tales of UFOs, airships, crashed crafts, and even a recovered alien pilot. 
Several of these stories draw interesting parallels to some of our most modern UFO sightings, and one of these actually gives us what may very well be the earliest use of the term flying saucer. And deep thanks to you if you're a supporter of Renegade Files on Patreon. Your continued support helps me make the show and keeps it free and ad-free. So thanks for being a Renegade Files agent on Patreon, if you are. The show exists because of you. Also, thanks to everyone who has bought gear from our merchandise shop. The new hats are really nice, so check them out. Find the Renegade Files shop through the link in the show notes or at therenegadefiles.com. Okay, here we go. Part 1. The Star People To begin this section, we have a quote from author Richard Wagamese, also known as Buffalo Cloud, who was a storyteller from the Wabasimung First Nation in northwestern Ontario. He writes, quote, My people tell of star people who came to us many generations ago. The star people brought spiritual teachings and stories and maps of the cosmos, and they offered these freely. They were kind, loving, and set a great example. When they left us, my people say there was a loneliness like no other. In a few short sentences, this passage from Buffalo Cloud encapsulates all of the important points of what the native traditions tell us about the star people. They were benevolent, generous, and instructive. They visited Earth long ago and had interactions with the first peoples of North America. Then they departed to reside only in legend and lore but their departure caused those who remembered them to be sad. Such was the quality of their friendship. What's important for me about this is the fact that these stories long predate examples of aliens presented in modern science fiction culture. So many times, stories of beings from other worlds are thought to be influenced by pop culture, but in the case of native North American histories, and important oral tradition tales. This is not the case. So right away, we have the basic definitions of star people as defined by these ancient cultures, casting the visitors as kind and helpful. These are not stories of wars between aliens and earthlings, but of cooperation between beings of different realms. So now we're going to get into some specific examples from Native American and First People traditions. The Hopi tribe remains a sovereign nation within the United States with their own constitution and the majority of Hopi people live in Arizona, which we know is prime UFO territory. Ancient Hopi tribes lived in what is now Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado and they were called Pueblo by the early Spanish explorers because of the apartment-like cliffside villages the Hopi constructed and lived in. Pueblo is the Spanish word for village. The Hopi villages were originally constructed at the bases of the mesas, which are small mountains, where farming was easier, but in the 17th century, 
the Hopi began to build their villages on the mesa tops or at least higher up for protection against the Utes, Apaches, and the Spanish. And the Utes and Apaches were other Native American tribes at the time. And you may remember from our episode on the Skinwalker Ranch that the Utes were very warlike and involved in a lot of land disputes in this area. The primary meaning of the word Hopi is one who is mannered, civilized, peaceful, and polite. The Hopi people value a total reverence for all things and peaceful life with all, and their traditional ceremonies are observed in lunar and seasonal cycles and are conducted for the benefit of the entire world. The Hopi also have a non-linear view of time, looking at the past as being a full and connected part of the present and of equal importance. This type of paradigm variation causes us to stop and really think about the ways that a mental construct such as our ideas and beliefs about something like time really do influence our lives. We imagine that the past is gone and the future is something we move forward to But these are abstract concepts. The fullness of life resides in the ever-evolving present moment and attention to the present, what we would call contemplativeness, is a healthful practice to cultivate. When we encounter a culture like the Hopi who have different concepts of time and view time as more of an eternal flow of things into and out of form, we may begin to see things from a new perspective. The Hopi think of themselves as caretakers of the land which they have inherited from those who came before them, so they take responsibility to pass it along with great care. The stories of their ancestors remain unbroken for centuries because they value the past in a different way than many of us in modern Western culture. They look at their own existence as flowing from those ancestors and into the next generation, rather than imagining that everyone lives forever except those few people here and there that die by accident. The Hopi described their timeline back to an age when their first ancestors came to Earth from the Pleiades. And that's a constellation of stars that we all know in the sky, that small little group. This is interesting because many other ancient cultures also have Pleiadian myths and legends among their own lore. The Hopi call these ancestors the Sky Elders. Legend has it that the Sky Elders traveled to Earth and interacted with a race the Hopi call the Ant People. The Ant People cooperated with the Sky Elders once they arrived on Earth from the Pleiadian star system. Together they helped the Hopi in far ancient times before the Hopi crossed the seas to arrive on the western shores of what we now call North America. The ant people are depicted on Hopi petroglyphs as having antennas and large oval heads. I have some really good pictures of these Hopi rock paintings and these beings absolutely look otherworldly. To be frank, they look like aliens. Now, this story from the Hopi is told by their wise men as their real history and not myth. 
Right away, this is interesting because we find connections between the Hopi Sky Elders and the Sumerian stories of the Anunnaki. Both involve beings from outer space helping earthlings to advance in farming, language, and other areas of social organization. And here is where we get into some truly high strangeness. The similarities between the race of star beings who descended to help earthlings as told by the ancient Sumerians shares a curious linguistic connection with the Hopi ant people. The Hopi word for ant is Anu, A-N-N-U, and the Hopi word for friends is Naki, N-A-K-I. So, in the Hopi language, the word Anunnaki literally means ant friends. And once again, when you look at the ancient Hopi rock paintings of the ant people, they totally look like aliens. To see these pictures quickly and easily, just click the link to our Patreon page in the show notes. The pictures are in the dark intel files for this episode, which I have made completely free so you can see them without signing up to our Patreon page. Not only can you quickly see the Hopi ant people cave paintings, you also get free access to the other pictures videos, research, and articles I collected while making this episode. Just click the link to our Patreon page in the show notes and scroll until you find this episode's Dark Intel Files post. There's other free content there you can check out too. It's totally free to look, and if you like Renegade Files, you can kick in a few bucks on Patreon to help me keep making this free and ad-free podcast. Thank you so much if you're already an RFA agent on Patreon. Cheers. The Hopi tribe is not the only group of Native Americans who say their ancestors came from the Pleiades. The Dakota call the Pleiades constellation the Tiami, and they too describe this star cluster as the home of their ancestors. The elders say that in far ancient times, the first nation of star people descended from the Pleiades to exist on Earth and these were the original Dakota people. Dakota spirituality also says that when Dakotas die, they return to live in their ancestral Pleiadian home among the stars. The Cree tribe, and that's C-R-E-E, is one of North America's largest first nation of people with some 350,000 or more Cree living mostly in Canada. The Cree are one of the tribes that used what we might consider a traditional teepee, and they often lived in small groups of hunters, gatherers, and trappers. Some Cree also live today in Montana. The Cree believe their ancestors also came from the stars, but in spirit form, and these ancestors transformed into human form once here on Earth. One really cool event created to unite science, first people's history, and the concepts of the star people as ancestors is called teepees and telescopes. And it was last held on the shores of Lake Winnipeg in rural Manitoba, Canada. And they may have done it since then. I think I found a newer edition of that event. Anyway, they do it periodically. Wilfred Buck, a Cree storyteller, 
says that the Pleiades is called Pacone Kissick, or the hole in the sky, and that it is where the Cree come from. He says that the Star Woman saw Earth from another dimension, and she fell through the hole to become the first human on Earth. Buck says, quote, We come from the stars. The Cree word for star is a kakosuk, which has the root akak, which means spirit. Stylized and brightly colored stars called Cree stars adorn blankets that are traditionally made to remind the Cree or all of us that we come from the stars. You may have seen these, they're beautiful. The Cree star blankets are really cool and I would love to have one. The TPs and Telescope event I mentioned earlier is an annual event in Canada that brings together both Cree and other tribes with scientific organizations such as the Canadian Space Agency and the focus is on youth activities and learning. It is a weekend of stories, astronomy, and ceremony. Attendees travel to a wilderness location, stay in traditional Cree teepees, stargaze through telescopes, hear stories, and learn together. The event combines stories of the star people and Cree teachings of the past, but also teachings of science like the tilt of the earth, the precision of our seasons, the northern lights phenomenon, and the particular path Mars takes through the sky, just as a few examples. Wilfred Buck explains that because Earth orbits the Sun faster than Mars, at certain times Earth passes Mars and it looks as if Mars does a circle in the sky or travels in what we call a retrograde motion. Buck explains that for this reason the Cree call Mars Kitam Pampoi or one who circles back. This is also why Mars is associated with the moose spirit in the Cree traditions because when a moose is startled it will often run in a circle before dashing away. And this is just one example of the ways that Native American spirituality so elegantly can dovetail with modern science. The Lakota are the first people of Northwest Wyoming and they share ancestry with the Sioux, that's S-I-O-U-X. The Lakota also designate the Pleiades as the home of their ancestors. Are we starting to see a pattern here? But they describe them as mysterious celestial beings able to manifest as spheres of light. One of their legends concerns the enigmatic Devil's Tower in Northwest Wyoming. Devil's Tower is that large outcropping of rock that looks like an enormous tree trunk. The story goes that a group of young girls were playing when they were chased by several enormous prehistoric bears. They climbed atop a hill, but the bears followed. Then the earth itself shifted to save the girls, and the ground rose while the giant bears were left behind to claw at the rising hillside and the girls rose to safety. Upon reaching such lofty heights, the girls transformed into beings of light and ascended to become the Pleiades and watch over all children of the earth forever. 
their own children then traveled back to Earth to become the Lakota tribes. This is a fascinating story and one that is rich with symbolism. The main idea that aligns with this episode is the notion that there were people who once inhabited the Earth, who then returned to the stars, and from this location in outer space, then returned to the Earth. So the story unites the nations of space with the nations of Earth in an eloquent and dramatic way. As above, so below. It's this connection between all things that accounts for the fact that, overall, the star people of the Native American peoples were, and are, not feared. We also have the stories of Flying Shields, an Oglala Sioux holy man who traveled with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, described first-hand accounts of seeing flying shields, which may indicate flying saucers. He described seeing a saucer land, and it was the shape of a three-dimensional concave disc with glowing lights. He said that aboard this ship came small people who spoke a strange language, but could read minds and communicate telepathically. Perhaps one of the most well-known Native Americans who has spoken at length about the concepts and histories of the Star People legends is Sioux Chief Golden Light Eagle. He has explained that, in fact, we are all star people, because we are all made from the same primordial matter and every molecule in our bodies was once contained in a star. He too uses this scientific fact to arrive at the hermetic principle of as above, so below. So once again, a connection of all things. He also says that beings from other solar systems or galaxies upon viewing Earth from a great distance, would see Earth as a star, just as we see Mars and Venus as stars from Earth. In this way, civilizations in outer space would see us as the star people. Most times when you hear Chief Golden Light Eagle speak, he will usually lead with a similar story of connection. This unites the people of Earth with the star people, rather than dividing and putting them at odds with each other. Let's listen to a short clip of Chief Golden Light Eagle speaking at a conference in Arizona in 2012. We didn't have words for for uh, what terminologies they have today, like UFOs, unidentified flying objects, and also uh, aliens and extraterrestrials, EV and extraterrestrial. Uh, biological entities. We didn't have those terminologies. Those are terminologies that separate you from something and somebody so beautiful. So we had a terminology, we didn't grow up with that, see? So we had we had a, a, a word called Wichachpe. Wichachpe, we have to the star nations, and there's billions of them. You look outside, every one of those lights, every one of those uh, novas and galaxies and many billions of universes, they're all there. So, but where your eye usually sets in the sky at night is 
source of your communication. Now, we have what they call vibration, a strong vibration, and it's a frequency that we read in each other. When you go in a room, you could feel the vibration of the room, something is going on. You could feel when things are not quite up to par with how you want them to feel. Maybe there's an argument, maybe there's, there was something happened, you could feel. So it's a vibration that you release, you release. And so the, the spirit, the, the star people, and every body on earth has this. So there's levels. We call our world 3D. You know, then there, there's other levels of existence, of planes, of knowings that we need to tap into. So when we get into a certain area, then we attract the vibration of that area. And we're able to communicate because we're starting to know the vibration. It's the same as if you come from the city and go to the country, you're going to have to change your vibration. In the same way of people coming from the country into the city, you have to learn this vibration, the languages and how people are. It's the same way with the star people. They all have different vibrations. So to communicate with them, you need to work on their level. And demands, forget it, don't make demands and say, come talk to me, come down if you're there, don't do this stuff. Because that, when you start demanding, it sets off a negative vibration and that's not what it's about. So you need to go in your, your quiet time, your ceremony, your honorable, your love time, and to raise yourself into a certain level of spirit so you can communicate, so you can touch their world. They're waiting for you. You know, just as we wait for those that want to learn something from us as well. So it's the same way. As above, so below. So we, we need to connect into their level and they can come down and connect to our level. So we both need to meet halfway. The star people have been here for a long time. Our, our whole system is based around star knowledge. So thank you, Chief Golden Light Eagle, for that wisdom. And wow, what a treasure it is to have that level of calm understanding. And I think all of us can benefit from some of those Native American teachings. I know that I have. So anyway, thank you. Outstanding. Amazing. So I love the idea of star nations. This idea that there are billions of civilizations across the universe and we are just one of them. This, in my mind, is most likely the case. Given the incredible size of the known universe and the vast distances involved when we begin to look outward. He also speaks of vibration, that all beings and all things exist at various frequencies of vibration which is something that our most celebrated scientists and spiritual teachers always realize and convey. Nikola Tesla said exactly this, 
we did a whole episode on the life and mysteries of Nikola Tesla. That was Renegade Files episode 30. So give that a listen or share it with a friend if you did and liked it. To share the show with someone, just send them to our website, which is therenegadefiles.com. There's a link in the show notes too. From there, they can find us on their favorite podcast app or even just listen to the show on our free player. We have every episode on the website for free. Thank you. So Chief Golden Light Eagle describes vibration as far as vibration relates to the star people in a very clever way. He says that various places have various vibrations, so that a room where an argument has just occurred has a negative vibration, and a sacred place where the fullness of life is valued has a positive vibration. He goes on to describe the way that the city has a different vibration than the country, and when you go from the city to the country, you have to change your vibration before you can truly communicate with the area and the people there. This is true. This is a subtle but important point, but one that I think anyone who has traveled can appreciate. Living in Florida and taking trips to the Florida Keys or the Bahamas, you always hear people talking about being on island time, which is an exact expression of this idea. You have to slow down, you have to chill out, so that you aren't constantly butting heads with the vibration of that place. There is the Caribbean and Central South American notion of manana. It's thought to be a tropical idea. When will you do it? When will it arrive? When will something or this or that be ready? Manana. Island time moves at the slower pace of manana. So people become frustrated because they were told that the store would be opened manana. Then they go the next day and the store is still closed or whatever it is they're trying to do, and they get upset because they believe that manana means tomorrow. But in the tropics, the phrase manana actually just means not today. It's subtle differences like this that take some getting used to, and this is just one example that happens with just a small change in latitude within a single state. Imagine when you're dealing with differences of galaxies. So Chief Golden Light Eagle says, in order to communicate with the star people, you have to do so on their level. And if you go in making demands, you're on a negative vibration and things won't work or they won't turn out well. So you have to go to your highest plane, your sacred place, your highest vibration, and then you can connect with all things on that level. It's also cool that he describes our modern scientific terms of extraterrestrial, EBE, and UFO as being terms that divide us from the star people, whereas the first people traditions connect with them and view all of us as being parts of the same universe. I mean, how many things do they have to get right before we ever start to listen? That's everything I have for us on the Native American ideas of star people, but... Before we move on to the Cowboys and Aliens segment, I want to share an amazing book that may be of interest if you want to dive deeper into the ideas of aliens among First Peoples and their histories. The book is Sky People, Untold Stories of E.T. Encounters in Mesoamerica by Dr. R.D. Sixkiller Clark. And that's A-R-D-Y. Dr. Clark is a Native American, an author, and a college professor at Montana State University. 
she founded the Center for Bilingual and Multicultural Education, and she has secured $27 million in grants for Native American students and created over 450 scholarships. To write this book, Dr. Clark retraced the steps of 19th century explorers Stevens and Cathwood into Mexico and Central America, which was a dream she had since she was 13 years old and read the stories of those explorers. Later in life, as an adult, I think in her 50s, over the course of 10 years, she drove 12,000 miles, retracing the route of these explorers that she learned of in a book when she was 13. She visited 89 archeological sites and interviewed 100 people to catalog these ancient stories of UFOs and extraterrestrials in the native cultures of those areas. This book is not only remarkable in the personal journey it took to write it, but it's unique in that such a respected and established educator has taken on such an esoteric topic. So cool. Part 2. Cowboys and Aliens The 2011 Steven Spielberg film Cowboys and Aliens was based on a comic book and it blends a Hollywood western story with alien attack tropes to make your standard action movie. This movie put the idea of Old West UFOs and aliens into the public consciousness and writers John LeMay and Noe Torres capitalized on the publicity when they wrote and published their nonfiction book called The Real Cowboys and Aliens, UFO Encounters of the Old West. Their book covers dozens of Wild West UFO and alien stories, as well as a Native American story of a Sasquatch that came to Earth in a flying moon. Some of the stories we will cover in this section come from this book and others don't, but that book is a great resource for anyone interested in the UFO tales of the American frontier. The first story comes to us from 1878 in Denison, Texas, when farmer John Martin saw in the daylight sky what he called a large saucer. This is in contrast to the popular notion that the 1947 Kenneth Arnold news article coined the term flying saucer. So, from the Denison Daily News on 25 January 1878, we read, From Mr. John Martin, a farmer who lives some six miles south of this city, we learn the following strange story. Tuesday morning, while out hunting, his attention was directed to a dark object high up in the southern sky. The peculiar shape and velocity with which the object seemed to approach riveted his attention and he strained his eyes to discover its character. When first noticed, it appeared to be about the size of an orange which continued to grow in size. After gazing at it for some time, Mr. Martin became blind from long looking and left off viewing it for a while in order to rest his eyes. On resuming his view, the object was almost overhead and had increased considerably in size and appeared to be going through space at a wonderful speed. When directly over him, it was about the size of a large saucer and was evidently at great height. Mr. Martin thought it resembled 
as well as he could judge, a balloon. It went as rapidly as it had come and was soon lost to sight in the heavenly skies. Mr. Martin is a gentleman of undoubted veracity and this strange occurrence, if it was not a balloon, deserves the attention of our scientists. End quote. This article is interesting for two main reasons. First, Martin describes the object not as saucer-shaped, but the size of a large saucer. It seems that the object was more of a sphere because he initially described it as the size of an orange and then as it moved closer and was directly overhead, he still says it was shaped like a balloon, so essentially like a globe. It traveled far faster than a balloon though, so it was the size of a saucer, but not necessarily the shape of a saucer. The second thing I find interesting is how small the object was. He saw it in daylight and said it was incredibly fast and vanished into space. A dark sphere the size of a large saucer. Amazing. It sounds like a drone. And we know they didn't have those in the 1800s. This next story is one of the most remarkable of all the Wild West UFO encounters. And we find this one in a newspaper the Missouri Democrat from October 19, 1865, and it concerns trapper James Lumley and what he saw at Kudot Pass, Missouri. So from that article, quote, Mr. James Lumley, an old Rocky Mountain trapper who has been stopping at the Everett House for several days, makes a most remarkable statement to us, and one which, if authenticated, will produce the greatest excitement in the scientific world. Mr. Lumley states that about the middle of last September, he was engaged in trapping in the mountains about 75 to 100 miles above the Great Falls of the Upper Missouri and in the neighborhood of what is known as Kadot Pass. Just after sunset one evening, he beheld a bright luminous body in the heavens, which moved with great rapidity in an easterly direction. It was plainly visible for at least five seconds when it suddenly separated into particles resembling as Mr. Lumley describes it, the bursting of a skyrocket in the air. A few minutes later, he heard a heavy explosion which jarred the earth very perceptibly, and this was shortly after, followed by a rushing sound like the tornado sweeping through a forest. A strong wind sprang up about the same time, but suddenly subsided. The air was also filled with the peculiar odor of a sulfurous character. These incidents would have made a slight impression on the mind of Mr. Lumley, but for the fact that on the ensuing day, he discovered, at the distance of about two miles from his camping place, that as far as he could see in either direction, a path had been cut through the forest several rods wide. I don't know how wide a rod is, but wide. Giant trees uprooted or broken off near the ground the tops of hills shaved off and the earth plowed up in many places. Great and widespread havoc was everywhere visible. I love how they wrote back then, right? Great and widespread havoc was everywhere visible. Following up this track of desolation, he soon ascertained the cause of it in the shape of an immense stone driven into the side of a mountain. An examination of this stone, or so much of it as was visible, showed that it was divided into compartments, and in various places it was carved with curious hieroglyphics. 
more than this, Mr. Lumley also discovered fragments of a substance resembling glass, and here and there, dark stains as though caused by a liquid. He is confident that the hieroglyphics are the work of human hands, and that the stone itself, although but a fragment of an immense body, must have been used for some purpose by animated beings. And that's the end of the article, or at least as much as I could find. So incidentally, Cadot Pass is named after Pierre Cadot, a half-Canadian, half-Cree Indian hunter and tracker who was said to be the best hunter and mountaineer in Missouri of the mid-1800s. Now, this story is incredible for several reasons. First, Lumley describes the air being filled with the smell of sulfur after he watched this object crash. The odor of sulfur is often reported in connection with low-flying UFOs and landed crafts, as well as with encounters with aliens, as in the case of the Virginia Brazil aliens, Renegade Files episode 28, Close Encounters in Brazil. The second thing is that Lumley said the object moved very fast, then separated into fragments like a skyrocket bursting. So this does sound like a meteorite crashing and coming apart in the atmosphere, which does happen, and a big one can be quite dramatic. Much of the rest of what Lumley described can also be explained by a crashing meteorite. That is, until he made his way to find the object and then saw that it was covered in what he specifically called hieroglyphics, and the article further states that Lumley was confident that these were the work of human hands, or at least intelligent hands, so not random scratches or marks. He calls the object a stone, which goes a long way to the side of the meteorite debunkers, but he also says that the interior was divided into compartments that he concluded must have been for some purpose for animated beings. The whole story is incredible, and it makes me wonder if anyone has ever tried to find this object. I found a few articles that speculate on the subject, but as far as I know, no one has ever mounted much of a deep exploration to find Lumley's crashed hieroglyphic UFO. In 1873, cotton workers in Bonham, Texas saw, once again in daylight, what they described as a giant silver serpent. They said it was the shape and dimensions of a snake, that it moved in a fluid, slithering manner, but through the sky at great speed, and that it gleamed as if it were made of shiny metal. Then, 24 hours later, an object of the exact same description was seen at Fort Scott, Kansas. There were also numerous similar silver serpent sightings by cowboys for a few years following these first two. Then in 1892, two cowboys riding the range outside of Tombstone, Arizona, chased and shot at, quote, a winged reptile 166 feet long with a wingspan over 90 feet. Their bullets had no effect and the creature or object vanished at a great speed into the heavens. Next we come to one of my favorite stories, the Aurora Alien Crash of 1897. In the very small town of Aurora, Texas in 1897, townsfolk were awakened by a loud explosion that shook the ground 
and some saw a glowing object descend at great speed. On the property of a local judge, this object crashed into and destroyed a windmill and was itself smashed into small fragments when it hit the ground on the judge's farm property. The next day, word of the crash had spread and many people arrived to inspect the crash site. Among the scattered damage, they found a single, small, deceased being in strange clothes, and they said prayers for the creature, and they agreed to call it the pilot. And one man said he believed the being to be a crashed alien from Mars. And I think this person who speculated that this crash being was from Mars was the local equivalent to the closest thing to an astronomer that they had at the time, maybe a teacher. The townsfolk decided that the proper thing to do was to bury the being, so they did so in the local cemetery, and they marked the gravesite with a small stone that a mason inscribed with the image of the UFO people described as seeing streak across the sky before it crashed. At the cemetery where the alleged alien pilot was buried, there is an engraved cast iron sign of the type you often see at historical sites, and this sign describes the history of the cemetery, and near the bottom there is a sentence explaining that, in 1897, the locals buried an alien who perished in a UFO crash nearby. This is the only official government acknowledgement in writing of an alien being and crashed UFO that I know of, and the late great Jim Mars made a point of mentioning exactly this in his segment on the Aurora crash which he did for Ancient Aliens. In that episode, Jim Mars tells us the story of visiting the grave when the headstone was still there and intact. Unfortunately, since then, the headstone has gone missing. And now that Jim Mars himself has passed away, very few people know exactly where the grave is located, if any. Jim Mars had visited the grave site with another researcher, and the two used a metal detector and found three readings of some highly concentrated metal at the grave site, underground. When they returned sometime later, they discovered that the metal readings no longer registered on their metal detectors. Upon inspection, they found three cylindrical holes had been bored into the ground at the locations where they had picked up the readings, and the headstone had vanished. It was Mars' belief that someone had extracted whatever metal they had discovered in the gravesite and removed the headstone to make future research more difficult. Petitions to exhume this body have been dramatically opposed and refused by the town officials who have jurisdiction over this historical cemetery, so it is unlikely at this point that we will ever know exactly what's buried there. And as if the Aurora alien crash of 1897 wasn't strange enough, we have the Brawley Oats account. Brawley Oats, that's B-R-A-W-L-E-Y, O-A-T-E-S, Brawley Oats, was a farmer who bought the land where the Aurora alien and UFO had crashed into the judge's windmill a hundred years before. And it seems that locals have said that the original owner of the farm, the judge, had collected many metallic fragments and other materials salvaged from the destroyed UFO and disposed of these in a deep well on his property 
that kind of old-fashioned well that looks like a concrete pipe coming out of the ground about four feet across maybe a little covered roof with a handle that turns to pull up a rope and you put a bucket down in there and draw water up and down so upon buying the land brawley oats and has there ever been a cooler name proceeded to descend into this well to clean out the silt at the bottom and attempt to restore the spring head and as he hoped get the well working once again After doing so, he immediately developed ailments which were diagnosed as arthritis, but that eventually grew to be debilitating deformities of his hands and arms and some organs, and he eventually died from whatever it was he actually had. Brawley Oates always contended that it was the contaminated water of the well that had caused his illnesses, and he speculated that it was due to some radioactive or otherwise poisonous nature of the UFO debris deposited there so long ago. In 1800, future President Thomas Jefferson and one of my heroes described seeing an object the size of a house in the sky that was the color of the setting sun and that lit the ground below and caused a violent rush of noise. This aligns with many accounts of glowing orange orbs seen across the U.S. and in other countries as well. Finally, we have a story from George Washington himself. While engaged in the Revolutionary War and the freezing winter at the Battles of Valley Forge, Washington told one of his officers that he often consorted with beings he called the Greenskins racist and that the beings were short warriors who lived in the wilderness and traveled in a glowing orb that would appear and vanish and sometimes hover in the air. Washington said that the Greenskins provided him with all manner of tactical information on the enemy and advice on approaching battles and he is said to have credited them with much of his success. Green Lives Matter This is an incredible story as it is but that much more amazing in that it comes from George Washington, who we know from that cherry tree incident just could not tell a lie. All right, that's all for today. Wow, what a cool subject. The combination of unidentified flying objects, visitors from other planets, ancient aliens, native people, and cowboys is almost too good to be true. We do have to remember, many of these stories come to us from newspapers in a time when newspapers were some of the only entertainment, and much of the tales lack any proof or evidence, but they also often possess that undeniable feeling of truth for some reason. The western frontier of the US in the late 1800s was a situation unique in the world both then and since. At no other time has there been such a wide expanse of habitable terrain so rich in both resources and utter freedom. Cowboys could travel into what is now Montana, Texas, or Colorado, round up wild cattle called mavericks, corral them in a fertile valley with tall green grass and running water for two full summers, let the steers become healthy, well-fed, and breed calves, then drive those cattle to a train station and ship them to the cities back east to sell, 
and for a few years' work, make enough money to head back to a frontier town and build a hotel, buy a saloon, or start a shipping company. Fortunes were made from hard work, persistence, and simple good thinking. Along the way, some of them saw objects in the sky that no one could explain, just like we do today. At the same time, the Native Americans in the U.S. and what we now know as Canada had centuries of stories of the star people who came from a distant galaxy to be the original inhabitants of this earth. Other ancient people like the Sumerians have similar stories. To this day, the Cree, the Sioux, and the Dakota have deeply sacred beliefs about the star people. There was a time when the spiritual traditions of the Native Americans were violently persecuted and driven out by missionaries and government officials and every manner of calamity. And it is very possible that that persecution of those Native beliefs has caused the stories that we heard then and that we hear now to be greatly edited by those Native people, and you cannot blame them. So even what we get now we have to wonder, are we getting the full story? It's possible that we're not. The Sky Elders, the Star People, and the Flying Shields of ancient times are brought to us as beings with great wisdom. They gave the people maps of the stars, the knowledge of sprouting seeds and growing crops, and a message that all of us are the Star People because we are all part of the same universe, and this is a universe filled with many star nations. The next time you're outside at night and you look up at the almost inconceivable beauty of a clear, star-filled night sky, and your gaze falls upon a single brilliant star, remember what Chief Golden Light Eagle said. Somewhere in the far reaches of space, another person like you may also stand looking up and out, and seeing Earth glimmer in the light of our sun wonder about life on our planet. It is this connection of wonder that unites us, together as consciousness in an endless universe. The star people of a billion star nations. Mudo, Zihi Zahales. Thank you sincerely for exploring Native American aliens and Wild West UFOs with me. I'm really happy to have you in the Renegade Files crew. If you enjoyed this episode and like the Renegade Files podcast, you can help keep it all going by joining the Renegade Files agency on Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadefiles where you can kick in just a few bucks in exchange for bonus episodes, access to the dark intel files, which are patron-only posts that contain all of the articles, books, videos, and deep research sources I collect when producing each podcast episode, and there's a lot more there. The dark intel files post for this episode is there for free, so check it out. If you can, then for less than you would tip a server for one meal out, you can become a valued part of the Renegade Files community and help me keep making the show 
while keeping it free and ad-free. You'll also be helping all of your fellow listeners because all of us love the show without ads. If you ever happen to hear an ad in a Renegade Files episode, it's because the podcast streaming app put the ad there, and we don't get any money from that. We also have no control over it, and I have been very strategic about choosing platforms specifically that do not put ads in our podcast. So if you think that that was a cool idea on my part, and if you like the podcast without ads, just like all of us do, then join us at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. There's also a link to the Patreon page in the show notes and as well at our website, and I will see you in there, and thank you so much. Until our next adventure, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, star child.